Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, welcome back to the Delicious Legacy Podcast. I'm your host Thomas Dinas, and on today's episode, I am discussing the first celebrity chefs of our modern era. Of course, there are a few that uh, fit into this category, and there were many who were great cooks cooking uh, in uh, the best hotels of the time, in uh, private houses, in kings, uh, and courts and royal courts and so on. It's also very interesting to see that not all of them were interested in um, creating something grander than, um, than a meal for, for a king, something that uh, will influence and affect all society. So on this episode I'm going to concentrate on three great chefs that more or less changed the face of uh, cooking um, in our age and still influence restaurants today. And were also great inventors, were people who were uh, who created um, or helped uh, revolutionize the process of um, not only cooking, but preserving food and um, making the whole the whole method and cooking in restaurants more hygienic, more ergonomical, and um, standardized. So, without further ado, let's get on with our episode. Lamb Cutlets Reform Chop a quarter of a pound of lean cooked ham very fine and mix it with the same quantity of breadcrumbs. Then, have ten very nice cutlets, lay them flat on your table, season lightly with pepper and salt, egg over with a paste brush and then throw them into the ham and breadcrumbs 
then beat them lightly with a knife. Put 10 spoonfuls of oil in a sauté pan, place it over the fire, and when quite hot, lay in the cutlets. Fry nearly 10 minutes over a moderate fire of a light brown color. To ascertain when done, press your knife upon the thick part. If quite done, it will feel rather firm. Possibly, they may not all be done at one time, so take out those that are ready first and lay them on a cloth till the others are done. As they require to be cooked with a gravy in them, dress upon a thin border of mashed potatoes in a crown with the bones pointing outwards. Sauce over with a pint of the sauce reform and serve. If for a large dinner, you may possibly be obliged to cook the cutlets half an hour before, in which case they must be underdone and laid in a clean sauté pan with two or three spoonfuls of thin glaze. Keep them in the hot closet, moistening them occasionally with a glaze, with a paste brush, until ready to serve. The same remark applies to every description of cutlets. Sauce a la reform. Cut up two middling-sized onions into thin slices and put them into a stew pan with two springs of parsley, two of thyme, two bay leaves, two ounces of lean uncooked ham, half a clove of garlic, half a blade of mace, and an ounce of fresh butter. Stir them 10 minutes over a sharp fire, then add two tablespoons of tarragon vinegar and one of chili vinegar. Boil it one minute, then add a pint of brown sauce or sauce espagnole, three tablespoonfuls of preserved tomatoes and eight of consomme. Place it over the fire until boiling. Then put it at the corner, let it simmer 10 minutes, skim it well, then place it again over the fire, keeping, keeping it stirred and reduce it until it adheres to the back of the spoon. Then add a good tablespoonful of uh, red currant jelly and half two of chopped mushrooms. Season a little more if required with pepper and salt. Stir until the gel is melted, then pass it through a tummy into another stew pan. When ready to serve, make it hot and add the white of a hard-boiled egg, cut into strips half an inch long and thick in proportion. Four white blanched mushrooms, one gherkin, two green Indian pickles and half an ounce of cooked ham or tongue all cut in strips like the white of egg. Do not let boil afterwards. This sauce must be poured over whatever it is served with. This is the original recipe in the Gastronomic Regenerator by Alexis Sawyer in 1848. A place of magical entertainment. The gardens being filled with fountains, statues and replicas of the seven wonders of the world and offering much else, including fireworks, music for dancing, and other noisy frolics. This is Elizabeth Ray's words for the gastronomic symposium of all nations. A rather grand uh, title for a restaurant by Alexis Sawyer, which opened in 1850. But who was Alexis Sawyer? Uh, how did he come to open the gastronomic symposium of all nations? in Kensington, opposite of the Great Exhibition. This is the age of the first celebrity chefs, men who would rise from poverty to the highest echelons of restaurants across um, Paris and London. Alexis Sawyer was one of them. He was born in 1810 and died in 1858. 
He was born in northeastern France, and although his early life is not well documented, he trained as a chef in Paris, but his career was brought to a halt by the July Revolution in 1930. He was cooking for a banquet given by the French chief minister when an armed mob broke in. Sawyer was unharmed, but in the aftermath of the revolution, his association with the fallen aristocracy made him a persona non grata and thus unemployable. So, at the suggestion of his brother, he moved to England. There, he has been living and working in London for several years now. And, of course, back then there was a long tradition of French uh, chefs working in the house of uh, Britain's rich and powerful uh, people. And among the celebrated chefs to move from France to England in the early 19th century were also Louis Eustace Eudes and Antonin Carême, who is another very important chef, which uh, we're going to see in a bit. Over the next six years, Sawyer moved upwards from post to post. He became sous-chef to the second Marquis of Waterford, and then in 1833 to the first Duke of Sutherland, whose London residence was Stafford House and was widely considered to be the grandest in the capital. When the Duke died in July of that year and Stafford House passed to his son, the latter's wife, Harriet, was a Whig hostess and promoter of liberal causes, and uh, she remained a friend and supporter of Sawyer throughout his life. Sawyer gained his first appointment as a head chef in a British establishment in the household of William Lloyd, a rich landowner who maintained a townhouse in the Upper Brook Street, Mayfair, but whose main residence was at Aston Hall in Shropshire. Sawyer worked for the Lloyd family for more than three years, becoming well known among the landed gentry, who vied to lure him away from the Lloyds, but had to content themselves with borrowing his services for important occasions. During his employment with the Lloyds, he decided to have his portrait painted by François Simoneau, a Belgian painter and a teacher based in London. By some accounts, he intended to send a portrait to Adeline Lamen in Paris, but at Simoneau's studio he met the artist's stepdaughter and pupil, Elizabeth Emma Jones, with whom he fell in love. Sawyer left the Lloyds in early 1836 to take over the kitchens of the first Marquis of Filesham at St. Margaret's House near Twickenham, a large riverside residence. The Marquis also had a central London house at the Privy Garden in Whitehall. He was a gourmet, a prominent Whig and a Freemason. It is possible that it was he who introduced Sawyer to Freemasonry, of which he became a lifelong member. The Marquis took a very active interest in the kitchen, discussing menus in detail with Sawyer, and was to remain the friend and supporter when Sawyer moved on after a year. At around 1837, Sawyer was appointed head chef of the recently founded Reform Club, a liberal-minded rival to the right-wing Carton Club. The Reform was temporarily based in Pall Mall, which purpose-built permanent premises were built further along the same street. Sawyer's kitchens of the Reform were the most talked of in the country and became even a tourist attraction. The Morning Chronicle commented that the British Museum Westminster Abbey and other tourist attractions were outshone by Sawyer's Kitchens at the Reform Club. The kitchens used a variety of fuels, coal, charcoal and gas, which gas was a major innovation. Meat and game were kept in a larder, fitted with slate tabletops and lead-lined ice drawers, keeping the temperature cool and constant. 
fish was fresh from the marble slab under a constant stream of iced water. The main kitchen table was large and 12-sided. At its center was a steam-heated metal cupboard in which delicate dishes would be kept hot. The table was built around the kitchen's four central columns, to which Sawyer had small cupboards attached, holding spices, salt, fresh herbs, breadcrumbs and bottle sauces, conveniently to hand for the chef and his juniors. Unusually for the time, several of Sawyer's junior chefs were women. In 1846, Sawyer published The Gastronomic Regenerator, from which we heard the recipe earlier on, a simplified and entirely new system of cookery with nearly 2,000 practical recipes and illustrated with numerous engravings, a work of well over 700 pages, according to the historian Eric Quayle. The book had a profound effect on the cooking and eating habits of several generations of Britons. It has been reported that the book had taken the author 10 months to prepare and during that time, as well as writing it, the chef had furnished 25,000 dinners, 38 banquets of importance, comprising above 70,000 dishes, besides providing daily for 60 servants and receiving the visit of 50,000 strangers, all too eager to inspect the renowned altar of a great Apician temple. Of course, what makes him special, what separates him from many other contemporary chefs of his, and perhaps there have been others too uh, feeling the same. But um, at that period, um, the Irish potato famine began in 1845, and Sawyer was among those uh, agitating for action by the British government to alleviate the starvation. He had recipes published in the Times for cheap but nourishing soup that uh, could be made in large quantities to feed the hungry. And then he put this theory to the practice, first in a soup kitchen in uh, Spitalfields in East End, where Huguenot uh, silk weavers have been impoverished by cheap imports. Under the pressure of public opinion, Parliament passed an act authorizing the establishment of soup kitchens in Ireland, and at the government's request, Sawyer sought leave of absence from the Committee of the Reform in 1847, and he went to Dublin, where he set up a kitchen capable of feeding a thousand people an hour. And while in Ireland, Sawyer wrote a sixpenny book, Sawyer's Charitable Cookery, or The Poor Man's Generator, and donated part of the proceedings to charity. In 1849, being a, a very restless spirit, Sawyer brought out uh, his most ingenious production, Sawyer's Magic Stove, a compact cooker with which food could be prepared at the table. Again, the Morning Chronicle commented that it was certainly portable. The whole apparatus can be carried at the bottom of your hat. It was a development of uh, early devices and it was further developed after his day. As well as a stove, Sawyer produced a series of kitchen gadgets that were the forerunners of many modern utensils, and sold a range of patent uh, sauces and relishes. Whatever novelty equipment he produced, and he, and whatever apparatus he made and um, invented, it seemed like every London newspaper was obsessed with it and had a, a say, uh, and along with uh, many provincial and Parisian journals as well. One thing to notice is that he never patented his inventions and therefore made little money from them. His next book, The Modern Housewife, was written in 1849 and was written with a middle-class readership in mind. It was written in the form of letters between two housewives and it gives us a very interesting insight into domestic life of the time. And we arrive in 1850 where Sawyer resigned from the Reform Club. He was invited to tender for catering at the Great Exhibition, being planned for the following year, but he found the proposed role too restrictive. Instead, he took a lease of Gore House, 
in Kensington, opposite the site of the exhibition, and there he created the Gastronomic Symposium of All Nations. By the way, the Great Exhibition was uh, called the Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations, and it was an international exhibition that took place in Hyde Park in London from May 1st to October 15th, 1951. It was uh, one of the first in a series of uh, world's fairs, exhibitions of culture and industry that became popular in the 19th century. It is said that 6 million people, which was the equivalent to a third of the entire population of Britain at the time, visited the Great Exhibition. So yeah, a very, very, very important event and very, very grand. And yet um, our chef Alexis Sawyer wanted to emulate something like that on his own about food. <laughs> Extraordinary character. But instead of uh, creating a place that it would be an exclusive establishment, catering to an elite clientele, his customers at Gore House were mostly from lower down the social scale, and the noise and drunken behaviour caused the local magistrates to withdraw his licence, forcing him to close the symposium with a loss of £7,000, which uh, worth about a million and a quarter in today's money. Of course, the closure of the symposium was uh, a big hit to his um, reputation. To begin the restoration of his reputation, he undertook another pro bono assignment. A scandal developed about supplies of canned meat to the Royal Navy. The command of the Royal Navy accepted Sawyer's offer to examine some of the cans. He endorsed the findings of other examiners that the supplier was using meat unfit for human consumption and found that the methods of canning were inadequate allowing even good meat to decompose within the tin. The Royal Navy adopted his recommendations that meat should be supplied by supervised suppliers and, after some official resistance to the grounds of cost, that smaller cans should be used, ensuring that the meat was adequately cooked to the centre. And around the same time, um, Sawyer was working uh, to a scholarly book, The Pantrophion, History of Food and Its Preparations, which was um, released around 1853. And this was a completely different style from his previous books. It was almost entirely based on the French manuscript he had acquired from its author, Adolphe Duhard Fauvet, which in fact he concealed at the time. The book was favorably reviewed, but it did not sell well. And after that, um, he wrote um, a work in his own uh, livelier style, which was aimed to the working class uh, readership, uh, A Shilling Cookery for the People, in 1854. And this opened with 37 super recipes and went on to cover topics ranging from the techniques for griddling, boiling and roasting fish to cookery, important remarks on steak and rump steak, meat puddings and pies, and a general lesson on the cooking of vegetables. Bell's Weekly Messenger, which was a British Sunday newspaper, asked, Where is the housewife who will be satisfied without a copy? Sawyer also, in a way, he's credited as the chef uh, who wrote down the first recipe for fish and chips, for fried fish, um, on his book, um, Sealing Cookery for the People. Basically, he, he in, a, in a sense, took uh, the recipe from the Jewish fish, the Jewish fried fish, and um, he also took the chips, a recipe for chips he came across in Belgium, and he put the two together. And the recipe in the book, which uh, covers various um, food... Um, categories and ways of cooking and ways of uh, saving money when you cook and creating delicious and nutritious dishes for the working classes and, and the lower strata of the society. So the recipe goes like this. 
fried fish, Jewish fashion. This is another excellent way of frying fish, which is constantly in use by the children of Israel, and I cannot recommend it too highly. So much so that various kinds of fish, which many people despise, are excellent cooked by this process. In eating them, many persons are deceived and would suppose them to be the most expensive fish. The process is at once simple, effective and economical. Not that I would recommend it for invalids, as the process imbibes some of the fat which, however palatable, would not do for the dyspeptic or invalid. Proceed thus. Cut one or two pounds of halibut in one piece, lay it in a dish, cover the top with a little salt, put some water in the dish, but not to cover the fish. Let it remain thus for one hour. The water being below causes the salt to penetrate into the fish. Take it out and dry it. Cut out the bone and the fins off. It is then in two pieces. Lay the pieces on the side and divide them into slices half an inch thick. Put into a frying pan with a quarter of a pound of fat, lard or dripping. The Jews use oil. Then put two ounces of flour into a soup plate or basin which mix with water to, to form a smooth butter, not too thick. Dip the fish in it that the pieces are well covered. Then have the fat not too hot, but put the pieces in it and fry till a nice color, turning them over. When done, take it out with a slice, let it drain, dish up and serve. Any kind of sauce that is liked may be used with it. But plain, with a little salt and lemon, is excellent. This fish is often only 3 pence to 4 pence per pound. It containing but little bone renders it very economical. It is excellent cold and can be eaten with oil, vinegar and cucumbers in summertime and is exceedingly cooling. An egg is an improvement in the butter. The same fish as before mentioned, as fit for frying, may be fried to this manner. Eels are excellent done so. The butter absorbs the oil which is in them. Flounders may also be done in this way. A little salt should be sprinkled over before serving. In some Jewish families, all this kind of fish is fried in oil and dipped in butter, as described above. In some families, they dip the dish first in flour and then in egg and fry in oil. This plan is superior to that fried in fat or dripping, but more expensive. Many of the above-mentioned families have stated days on which they fry or stew their fish, which will keep good several days in the summer, and I may almost say weeks in winter. And being generally eaten cold, it saves them a deal of cooking. Still, I must say that there is nothing like a hot dinner. Restless spirit as he was in 1855, when the reports of conditions uh, endured by British soldiers in uh, the Crimean War uh, were revealed uh, in the press, basically, yeah, disease and near starvation, Sawyer offered the government his services again at his own expense. And the offer was accepted and he went on to Scutari and Constantinople, uh, reforming the catering in the hospitals there. He then went with the Florence Nightingale to Balaclava and Sevastopol and reorganized provisioning of the field hospitals, in addition to undertaking the cooking for the 4th Division of the Army. Until that time, soldiers uh, had a daily allowance of a pound of meat and a pound of bread and were expected to cook their own food. Obviously, ignorance led to undercooking and food poisoning on a large scale, 
So Sawyer decided that each regiment should have a trained cook, armed with a book of simple recipes, which he put together for the purpose. He had brought with him a small team of cooks, whom he sent out to teach selected soldiers. The army adopted his arrangements permanently, giving rise to the appointment of regimental cooks and eventually, in 1941, the creation of the Army Catering Corps. It's significant that uh, before leaving London, Sawyer had devised field stoves, which he had sent then out to him for use in the camp kitchens. These were horse-drawn boilers that could cook whether the army was stationary or moving, and they proved so efficient and economical that the army used them in later modifications for more than a century. I think I used a similar one uh, when I was in the army, but um, I'm not entirely sure right now. So his contribution to the war effort brought him further fame in Britain, and in May 1857 returned to London, where he published a culinary campaign recounting his experiences in the Crimea and his reform of the army catering. He included a section of recipes for military or naval cooking, such as salt meat for 50 men, salt pork with mast peas for 100 men, and pot of fur camp fashion. In March 1858, he lectured at the United Service Institution on Cooking for the Army and the Navy. He was then asked to design new kitchens for the existing Wellington Barracks. In July 1858, although he was able to attend the official opening of the kitchens he had designed, his health declined rapidly. He had a stroke in early August and died at his house in St. John's Wood on 5th of August 1858, age just 48. My dearest friend, you are right. Cookery in our era has been thought beneath the attention of men of science. And yet, was there ever a political, commercial or even a domestic event, but what always has been and always will be, celebrated either by a banquet or a dinner? And pray, who is answerable for the comfort and conviviality of the guest of such festivals but the cook who has been entrusted with such important duties? The selection of good and proper beverages will, of course, greatly assist the cook's endeavours, but these may be purchased months or even years before, before you require them, which would, of course, give you an ample chance of remedying any error, while dinner is the creation of a day and the success of a moment. Therefore, you will perceive that nothing more disposes the heart to amicable feeling and friendly transactions than a dinner well-conceived and artistically prepared. In ancient times, a cook, especially if a man, was looked upon as a distinguished member of society, while now he is, in the opinion of almost everyone, a mere mortal, a mere menial. Still, there are a few who highly appreciate the knowledge he possesses, especially in the higher circles, who have classified cookery as a high art. For example, let us see what one of the greatest chemists of the day, Liebig, says on the imperishable subject in his valuable work, The Chemistry of Food. Among all the arts known to man, there is none which enjoys a juster appreciation and the products of which are more universally admired than that which is concerned in the preparation of our food. Led by an instinct which has almost reached the dignity of conscious knowledge as the unerring guide and by the sense of taste which protects the health the experienced cook with respect to the choice, the admixture and the preparation of food, 
has made acquisitions surpassing all that the chemical and physiological science have done in regard to the doctrine of theory of nutrition. In soup and meat sauces, he imitates the gastric juice, and by the cheese in which closes the banquet, he assists the action of the dissolved epithelium of the stomach. The table supplied with dishes appears to the observer like a machine, the parts of which are harmoniously fitted together, and so arranged that, when brought into action, a maximum of effect may be obtained by the theory of them. The able culinary artist accompanies the sanguineous matter with those which promote the process of solution and sacrification in due proportion. He avoids all kinds of unnecessary stimuli, such as do not act in restoring the equilibrium, and he provides the due nourishment for the child or the weak old man, as well as for the strong of both sexes. Such is the high eulogium paid to the culinary science by that learned man, and perhaps there is no one more able to appreciate its value than him. Therefore, I do not yet despair of seeing the day when that science, like others, will have its qualified professors. I now close our labels for the present and wait with anxiety the first proof, which on receiving I will immediately correct and forward to you. This is an introductory letter in Sawyer's book, A Shilling Cookery for the People, which was published first in 1854. As we can see, Sawyer was a man who was rightly concerned about nutrition for everybody, for the masses, for the poor people, for those suffering, and he wanted to create a system that worked for everyone. He seemed to be like a true hero of the day, a celebrity chef with a cause, and also a person that um, should be more well known to our uh, present day. And perhaps a lot more um, celebrity chefs today should, um, should follow his example, perhaps. I think it's quite easy to find um, most of Sawyer's books online now, on the Internet Archive or something like such. So if you have an interest to see how he wrote his recipes and what kind of recipes and what kind of thought process he had behind them, yeah, go for it. Find, find the books and um, check it for yourselves. I'll be back after this short break. Hello there. Sorry to interrupt. My name's Dr. Neil Buttery and I'm host of the British Food History Podcast, a podcast that you, as a fan of the delicious legacy, might be interested in. I explore British food and its history in all its glory, with interviews with special guests, recipes, reenactments, and tracking down forgotten recipes and hyper-regional specialities. Previous topics include medieval eels, 18th century dining, curry, London street food sellers, breakfast, and the good old Yorkshire pudding. Search for the British Food History Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the delicious legacy. Cheers! Today's episode is brought to you with the welcome support of Malbin Greek, UK's leading Greek delicatessen, supplier and distributor of premium Greek produce. Whatever you need, Malbin Greek has you covered. You can shop online and have the divine and delicious goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK or you can visit the shop at Art17 Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SC16, 4ET, Bermondsey, London. Malby and Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A chef, though, that preceded Alexis Sawyer, and uh, in a way, he was the very first celebrity chef of our modern age, was Marie Antoine Carême, or by name Antonin Carême, who was born uh, in 1784 in Paris, again, another French chef, and died in 1833. He was a French chef who served the royalty of Europe, wrote several classic works of, on cuisine and advanced the notion of cuisine as both an art and a science, according to Encyclopedia Britannica. He started as an apprentice in a leading Parisian patissier and quickly became known for his uh, patisserie skills. Being from a destitute family, his childhood is covered in tragedy and mystery and um, surrounded with uncertainties. It is said that he was born the 16th child and uh, he was suddenly abandoned at the height of the French Revolution around 1789. At eight years old, he worked as a kitchen boy for a chop house in Paris in exchange for room and board. And then, as I said earlier, he became an apprentice in one of Paris's most uh, fashionable neighborhoods. He was extremely curious and extremely um, uh, driven uh, uh, to read and write and uh, extend his knowledge. So he would often spend his free afternoons as a teenager in the Bibliothèque Nationale, poring over books on art and architecture. Uh, and uh, in the back room of the little patisserie, Karem's penchant for design and his baking talent collided as he shaped delectable masterpieces out of pastry, marzipan and sugar. His opulent creations um, in the bakery, which were displayed in the window, captured 
the discriminating eye of a French diplomat, Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigord. Around 1904, the diplomat challenged Carême to produce a full menu for his personal chateau, instructing the young baker to use local seasonal fruits and vegetables and to avoid repeating entrees over the course of an entire year. And according to the legends, of course, the experiment was a grand success. And of course, uh, the diplomat's association with uh, the French nobility would prove a lucrative connection for Carême. Of course, working with other leading chefs of the day, he extended his knowledge and covered all aspects of cooking and baking and... Um, and he became head chef to various uh, famous people as well. The French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, um, uh, he was under pressure by the Paris nobility, high society, so he summoned Karim to his kitchen uh, to cook. Basically, he designed a lavish cake for his wedding uh, with his second bride, Marie-Louise of Austria. His main focus was the appearance on the table and not just the flavor of the dishes. He also cooked for Tsar Alexander I, he also cooked for the Prince Regent, the future George IV of Great Britain, and he spent seven years with the Baron de Rothschild at his Ferrier's estate. He was lauded as the King of the Chefs and the Chef of the Kings. His uh, gastronomic displays became the epitome of the fine French dining, bountiful and beautiful and ostentatious. For example, for the feast celebrating the Grand Duke Nicholas of Russia visit to George IV's Brighton Pavilion, in January 18, 1817, the menu featured 120 different dishes, highlighting 8 different soups, 40 different entrees, and 32 desserts. Apicius eat your heart out. He was one of the first to conceive and codify the mother sauces, the four mother sauces, as they're called in um, modern cookery, and basically they're used since then to many, many, many restaurants, especially for French dining. And these sauces, we know them as bechamel, velouté, espagnol and alemán. He also perfected the souffle. He became the first chef to pipe his meringue through a pastry bag and introduced the standard chef's uniform, the same double-breasted uh, white coat still worn by chefs today. This white clothing conveyed an image of cleanliness, according to Karim, and in his realm, appearance was everything. In a way, he codified and simplified uh, the French cuisine, the French cookery, insisted on the finest ingredients and the most expensive ones. He invented or refined choux pastry, profiteroles, volovans, and milfeilles. And of course, he wrote several cookbooks. He elevated the cuisine, the French cuisine, to something more grand, what we call haute cuisine. And um, the influences felt upon us until today. He managed to systematized the cuisine and managed to build on a recipe upon a recipe and this way uh, created something that set him apart from his contemporaries. A method of uh, preparing from a sauce to a soup to a whole meal to a banquet for, for hundreds of people, almost very rational. As we said, he became their first celebrity chef. France at the time was flourishing and the printing press uh, makes it possible for his book to be mass-published. And they were not expensive as well. His cookbooks were full of uh, his drawings, architectural drawings that people like to cook at. And uh, it was much like a coffee table book today, because for the most part people could not uh, reproduce these things at home. The kitchens weren't uh, that kind of kitchens, but the books were 
very popular thing to have and discuss with others. And the books also were translated quickly into English and spread throughout Northern Europe. But ultimately, his view of the cuisine was uh, different from uh, Sawyer's, I think. He cooked for the ruling classes. He didn't write or categorize cuisine for commerce. And obviously his style was limited to using the best of the best, to having no constraints, financial or material. Carême didn't like the individualization of cuisine and the 19th century way of serving menus course by course, which as a style comes from Russia and is still referred to as service à la Russe. What he liked was a fantastical display of service à la Française, so everyone sat around the table and the chef dictated the menu. There was no menu handed to the guests and uh, there was the table was laid out with all manner of food and the preparations and ground platters and rich sauces and this and that. After years of working in uh, unventilated kitchens with coal fires, all this took a toll on him and uh, he died rather young in 1833, betrayed by his uh, severely damaged uh, lungs. Of course, all this brings us to Auguste Escoffier, perhaps the most uh, well-known of the first famous chefs of the day. A chef and a restaurateur and a writer as well, popularized and updated the traditional French uh, cooking methods. And of course, a lot of his writing and technique was based in uh, Carême's writings, but uh, his achievement was to simplify and modernize all of Carême's elaborate and ornate style. He was another chef that he was uh, lauded by the press uh, and was said that he was the king of the chefs and the chef of kings. At the time, most of the kitchens were loud, riotous places where drinking in the job was commonplace and um, Escoffier uh, changed the profession, elevated it a little bit. He demanded cleanliness, discipline and silence from his staff. In bringing order to the kitchen, he tapped into his own military experience to develop the hierarchical Brigade de Cuisine system for organizing the kitchen staff, which is still standard in many restaurants today. He's the most recent uh, of uh, these uh, chefs. Uh, he was born in 1846 and died in 1935. So it's little less than 100 years since his death. But the time of his life was, was a time of many, many innovations and um, new ways of um, cooking and preserving food and transporting food. So all the industrialization of the society also brought massive changes into the kitchen as well. And that led, obviously, to a lot of this to be utilized in commercial kitchens. He was born near Nice, in uh, um, the country's uh, southeast corner, near the Italian border and the Mediterranean coast, in a small village. The house he, he was born is now the Musée de l'Art Culinaire. And in his early life, he saw a promise as an artist. But his father took him out of the school, at the age of 12, to start an apprenticeship in the kitchen of his uncle's restaurant, Le Restaurant Francais in Nice. As an apprentice, Escoffier was bullied and swatted by his uncle, and his small stature made him even more a target, even more of a target. He was too short to safely open oven doors. Eventually, he wore boots with built-up heels, and uh, he showed such an aptitude for cooking and kitchen management 
that he was soon hired by the nearby Hotel Bellevue, where the owner of a fashionable Paris restaurant, Le Petit Moulin Rouge, offered him the position of commissaire de serre, apprentice roast cook, in 1865 at the age of 19. A few months later, after arriving in Paris, Escoffier was called to active military duty, where he was given the position of the army chef. He spent seven years in the army, and his experience there led him to study the technique of canning food. 8th of March, 1898. Three managers have been dismissed, and 16 fiery French and Swiss cooks, some of them took their long knives and placed themselves in a position of defiance, have been bundled out by the aid of a strong force of metropolitan police. These managers were Rich, Echenard and Escoffier, and they were brought in front of the board and dismissed from the Savoy for gross negligence and breaches of duty and mismanagement. But most of the kitchen and hotel staff were loyal to Rich and Escoffier, and as news spread, disturbances in the Savoy kitchens reached the newspapers, with the headlines such as a kitchen revolt at the Savoy. So Escoffier was another of these famous French chefs that cooked in London, but he reached London. In 1884, Escoffier and his wife moved to Monte Carlo, where he was employed by César Rich, manager of the new Grand Hotel, to take control of the kitchens. In 1890, they accepted an invitation from Richard Doyle Cart to transfer to his new Savoy Hotel in London, together with the third member of the team, the Met Hotel, Louis Echernat. The Savoy, under Rich and his partners, was an immediate success attracting a distinguished and moneyed clientele headed by the Prince of Wales. Escoffier created many famous dishes at the Savoy. In 1893, he invented the Peche Melba in honour of the Australian singer Nelly Melba and, in 1897, Melba Toast. Other Escoffier creations famous in the time were the Bomb Nero, a flaming ice cream, strawberries with pineapple and curacao sorbet, a Meringue with vanilla cream and crystallized white rose and violet petals, and jellied chicken breasts with foie gras. He also created Salad Rejeanne, after Gabrielle Rejeanne, a French actress, and uh, Tunedos Rossini. Tunedos uh, Rossini is a French steak dish consisting of uh, beef uh, fillet, pan fried in butter, served on a crouton, and topped with a hot slice of fresh whole foie gras, briefly pan fried. And the dish is garnished with slices of black truffle and finished with a Madeira demi-glace sauce. There onwards, we have the fraud in the Savoy, and then by that time, though, Rich and his colleagues were financially and commercially independent, so they established the Rich Hotel Development Company, for which Escoffier set up the kitchens and recruited the chefs, first at the Paris Ridge and then the new Carlton Hotel in London which soon drew much of the high society clientele away from the Savoy. Escoffier died uh, on 12 February 1935, at the old age of 88. Escoffier wrote eight landmark books, including his most famous Le Guide Culinaire, which is still used today and has over 5,000 recipes. The guide has been translated into English as the complete guide to the art of modern cookery. Recipes there stress using freshest ingredients, local ingredients that are in season and simplified preparation that allowed for flexibility that carries over to our time, according to some people, of course. But also, uh, he developed uh, canning of tomatoes, vegetables and other methods of food preservation. As we said, he was interested from his time in the army on canned food. He invented the bouillon cube as well, 
Of course, there are many other um, cookbook authors and um, writers who I would like to concentrate as well, especially in the English-speaking world, um, and many of whom are women. And I want to explore a little bit that interesting thing of um, the household uh, cookbooks and how they developed and um, what conditions uh, gave rise to this and who were the first uh, people who wrote some important cookbooks and why, of course. People like Eliza Acton, Hannah Hooley, Isabella Beaton and Elizabeth Raffald. But I think that's um, going to be a subject for another episode. So I will leave you here. And remember, if you want the podcasts early and ad-free, subscribe to my Patreon page where you get also a wealth of other information too with recipes and videos and so on. If you would like to help the podcast uh, grow and uh, spread to more people, please uh, share it with your friends and family. And the easiest thing to do is recommend it to three of your friends that you think will be interested in. So go forth and spread the word of the delicious legacy. Anyway, I'll see you soon for more archaeogastronomical and not so ancient gastronomical adventures. I've been Thomas Dinas and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. Thank you. Until the next time, take care, eat well and see you soon. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.